You're listening to The Diplomats Podcast on Asian geopolitics. As always, I'm your host, Ankit Panda, here from New York City. And this is Prashant Harmas, run from Washington, D.C. Good to be back with you, Prashant. How are you doing this week? Good. How are you doing? Doing well. Uh, we are finally going to talk about the 2019 novel coronavirus outbreak, uh, which began in Wuhan, China. This has obviously been something that I think many of our listeners have been expecting us to tackle uh, the reason we didn't get to it before this week is because there was a lot of uncertainty about what exactly this outbreak would mean for the Asia-Pacific region and the world more broadly. Uh, but now, several weeks in, uh, the first cases that were reported were in early January, and now we're in the first week of February. I should clarify that we're recording this on February 5th, U.S. Eastern Time, at around 3 p.m., and the only reason I make that clear is... Uh, things are changing very quickly, including uh, the number of infections in China and the overall death toll. Um, so one of the things that's really, I think, striking about the coronavirus is the extent to which this epidemic has um, so quickly spread around the world and particularly inside China. So as of February 5th uh, in the morning uh, here in the United States, uh, the number of reported cases in China were uh, was inching up towards 25,000. Um, and another 27 countries around the world, many of them in Asia, were exhibiting several cases. And we had records, um, records of two deaths outside of China from the disease, both from people that had been to Wuhan, China recently. One of those deaths was in the Philippines and a second in Hong Kong. Um, so, Prashant, there's a lot to talk about here. Um, and, I think, and I think we'll try to cover the gamut as best we can. Um, one of the big things, I think, is the domestic reaction within China. Um, a lot of comparisons have been made with what the Chinese government learned and did not learn from the SARS epidemic in early in the early 2000s, in 2002, 2003, um, and sort of the role of authoritarian controls on the spread of information and how the Chinese government has dealt with that since. There's a lot of skepticism internationally about whether the Chinese government, despite having been quite transparent about the actual um, nature of the coronavirus itself, uh, sharing the genetic um, buildup of, of the virus itself, uh, whether the Chinese government has been forthcoming about the extent of the problem domestically. And then secondly, we can talk a little bit about the regional reaction and the global reaction, um, how countries have reacted to the spread of, of, this, of this disease and the measures that are being taken across Asia to halt its spread more broadly. Um, and that, I think, leads to some interesting um, second-level issues on, um, in terms of the blowback against um, Asians uh, worldwide. Uh, we've had some distressing stories, I think, from Europe uh, and even in other places in Asia where anybody that appears to be Chinese is um, treated poorly. We've seen a spike in racism and xenophobia against people of East Asian descent more broadly. Um, and it'll be, I think, worth discussing if that's going to lead to a broader blowback uh, within China, depending on how long this runs for. But, you know, there's a lot of uncertainty about um, about the coronavirus still. You know, how long is this epidemic going to run for? Is this going to become a pandemic, uh, which is an epidemic occurring on multiple continents? Right now, this is uh, an epidemic in Asia, but um, still not an epidemic outside of Asia just yet. Uh, there are concerns about how long this will go on. Um, Japanese, uh, the Japanese government in particular has reason to be concerned given that it is hosting the Summer Olympic Games later this year. And if the coronavirus epidemic does continue, uh, that might require significant changes uh, to the Olympics, but potentially even including a delay or a cancellation. Um, 
But, you know, let's begin by talking a little bit about the domestic reaction in China. What have, what have you taken away from the way the, the Chinese government has uh, dealt with this internally uh, and externally? Yeah, I mean, I think this is one of the more fascinating uh, angles in, in terms of how this is playing out, because I, the the big comparison that's been made with respect to the coronavirus has been, you know, the response relative to uh, the SARS crisis that emerged in the 2000s. And I think, you know, that, that might be useful in some ways in terms of comparing it to a, a previous case that, you know, is, is analogous in some way. But I think in many ways, it, it, it kind of misses the point, right? So where China is and in, in, now and where it was in the 2000s is significantly different, right? In the 2000s, we were dealing with a China that was, you know, still rising. Economic linkages with a lot of the uh, surrounding Asian countries were not as deep. They were deepening, but not as deep. And I think we were also in an environment where we were still in this sort of, you know, post-Cold War phase of, you know, an environment where we assumed, you know, democracy was was still rising, a little bit of a slowdown, but not nearly the kind of uh, conversation we're having today. Whereas in the contrast now, I mean, this epidemic is happening when we have a conversation about, you know, a risen China, much more, uh, you know, stronger economic linkages, and a period where, you know, democracies are feeling a sense of of rollback amid, you know, sort of challenges from authoritarian countries and regimes like China and Russia. And so when you have a story and a development like this break, um, there will be even more scrutiny on China's domestic governance. And I think part of it, it has to do with how China's responding, but part of it has to do with that broader environment. And it, and it's very difficult to actually evaluate some of these claims, right? So, you know, there is evidence, and we, we've seen reports about this, that there were, you know, cases of human-to-human transmission that were evident earlier, and yet the news didn't break until, you know, a few days or a few weeks later, which, you know, in a crisis like this, you do want to see some, you know, quick response. So that obviously is something that we can actually think about as a more specific manifestation of it. But some of the other criticisms uh, in terms of how China is managing this, it's very difficult to know. Uh, you know, even, you know, conversations that I've heard from health experts that have been talking about this, including those that are familiar with the environment in China, they have been saying, well, the environment and the system in China makes it very difficult to evaluate this because you have the response of the national government versus the responses of the, the local authorities. In some cases, China's acted very quickly to, to sort of quarantine uh, places and make sure that things are cleaned up. But in some cases, they've done that too efficiently. And so there's no evidence to actually report. Uh, and they've actually not coordinated as well with international authorities. And so it's very difficult in this sort of you know non-transparent environment to get a sense of how China's responding. But I think it's fair to say that you know we have enough evidence that you know, there's been some uh, sort of issues with how China's responding to this at the domestic level, and that matters because it it affects inherently what happens internationally as well. Yeah, I mean, um, yeah, we should talk a little bit about the measures that China's taken. Uh, so right before the Lunar New Year holiday, China announced that the city of Wuhan, um, a city of around 11 million people uh, in, in uh, central China, a major transportation hub uh, right before the Lunar New Year holiday would be entirely shut down uh, and effectively the entire city remains under quarantine. Um, Hubei province um, in, in central China is really the epicenter of the outbreak, Wuhan specifically. Other cities in the region have also been um, 
been cracked down. And that's sort of one of the measures that really China, with its authoritarian system, um, is able to take steps like that. Since uh, since those steps, the World Health Organization has actually been quite complimentary towards China on mm-hmm. the extent of cooperation, um, despite having uh, declared this an international emergency um, after, after an initial meeting. But, you know, I mean, it really seems like even within the crisis, uh, Chinese leaders are not necessarily learning the lessons of either the SARS crisis or the effects that information controls have already had on mm-hmm. controlling the coronavirus outbreak. Uh, just uh, two days ago, uh, the Politburo Standing Committee in China, uh, the apex political organization within the Communist Party, uh, met to discuss the issue and called for actually strengthening internet and media controls uh, to prevent the spread of sort of panic and 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 what they claim was misinformation. Uh, so really, this is, I think, a major test for the Chinese political system. Um, and, you know, I mean, we have to also acknowledge that this is coming at a... You know, if you look at the last year in China, I mean, I think for Xi Jinping in particular, there have been a lot of sources of concern for the longer term sustainability of the Chinese model. I mean, uh, not only can we talk about, you know, slowing growth rates even before the coronavirus shock to the Chinese economy, um, but obviously protests in Hong Kong, um, the election result in Taiwan with a resounding mandate for Tsai Ing-wen and the independence-leaning Democratic Progressive Party, uh, increased scrutiny of China's actions in Xinjiang. Um, all of this, I think, uh, on you know, on top of this, now you get this coronavirus outbreak. And you have been seeing examples of Chinese citizens actually, you know, questioning um, as much as they can before these posts get uh, deleted on uh, Weibo and other uh, Chinese uh, social media out- outlets about the way in which this this is being handled. So longer term, I mean, if, if this epidemic does persist for weeks um, and months, um, that could lead to a serious bout of political instability uh, within China. And I think the Communist Party is quite worried about that internally. Yeah, absolutely. And I and I think we, we are seeing, you know, growing growing evidence of, you know, cases within China where um, either information restrictions or issues about how people will actually be dealt with are, are emerging, right? So in Xinjiang, for example, I think the latest we, we've heard from the Chinese government is, you know, they can't discuss the conditions of, you know, citizens in that area, particularly those in, in camps, because, you know, that's a state secret in China. Um, but you know, nonetheless, when these situations arise, you know, you do have uh, questions not just about, you know, the, the people who are free in China, but also the people who are under duress. And the fact that we see that situation emerging is, is you know, doesn't bode well for China's international reputation within this broader environment we're talking about. Yeah. I mean, so, uh, you know, we should talk a little bit about the uh, economic implications. Um, so the minute this uh, it became apparent that this was an international emergency and an epidemic, uh, the number one concern I think a lot of people had uh, was what will the effect be on supply chains connected to China um, and including the uh, the secession of the outflow of tourism, but also um, given the panic over coronavirus right now, uh, consumption in China is simply down. People aren't leaving the house. They're not spending money uh, like they would be. Um, but again, longer term, I think there are serious concerns. What's been interesting, though, is that if you look at, you know, the if you if, if you look at the stock market for companies with significant exposures to China, you know, let's like take a company like Apple. Um, there hasn't really been a major um, correction just yet over this panic. So it seems like investors are still hedging that this is not going to get as bad as some of the dire predictions have suggested. Um, But certainly, I think uh, if you look at the Chinese Communist Party's concerns about growth more broadly, this is really 
um, a, a crisis that stands to make that matter a lot worse. Uh, so I think that's um, uh, something to definitely keep an eye on. Um, but a lot of uh, you know international airlines are are shutting down operations to China, which is also going to prevent people to people contacts between uh, China and the outside world. Um, in the United States right now, um, non-American citizens or um, permanent residents that have been to Hubei province recently uh, are not being let into the United States, uh, which is a pretty dramatic course of action that uh, China has actually criticized. Um, and maybe that's actually a segue to talk a little bit about some of the blowback that we're seeing, um, especially, you know, the nationalist uh, Global Times uh, on Twitter and in a number of articles has been critical of the United States and saying that the U.S. is not actually helping China uh, deal with the coronavirus. Uh, and of course, you know, there are conspiracy theories upon conspiracy theories that, uh, you know, depending on who you talk to, that this is uh, some kind of U.S. Uh, designed conspiracy or, mm-hmm. uh, you know, if um, in other parts of the world, there's um, conspiracies that this is a bioweapon. Um, you know, in case any listeners are sort of mulling these conspiracies, I mean, that's really not how a bioweapon would work. You don't want high communicability and low lethality like the coronavirus exhibits uh, but uh anyways that's that's neither here nor there uh, so what have you made of the of the blowback that we've kind of seen uh, within china towards the way in which the us and some other countries have reacted so far yeah i mean i i think you know you're right to sort of you know caution that this is something that you know plays out uh in in a lot of these crises that we are i remember during the the bird flu or the avian flu crisis too we we heard some similar conspiracy theories that were emerging um, so not necessarily surprising on that front. I think, you know, going back to the sort of regional and international context um, that you laid out there, you know, we are in an environment of, you know, increased, you know, U.S.-China competition on a variety of fronts. And I think the, the hope would be uh, that in a normal situation where, where you have both sides talking to each other, that this is the kind of crisis that would bring both governments together and, and really bring the world together to tackle this. Because, you know, the, these these pandemics and, and diseases don't really see through borders or, or geopolitical uh, tensions or divisions, right? Um, but instead, I, I think what's playing out is, you know, you're, you're seeing uh, elements of this on both sides, you know, conspiracy theories emerging, you know, out of China, but also, you know, a very much a lot of scrutiny on each comment that, you know, any U.S. official makes. I think when when Pompeo was in Central Asia, uh, when he suggested, uh, you know, plainly that, you know, the coronavirus was emerging from China, there was a scrutiny on that saying, oh, you know, he went out of his way to point out that the coronavirus is happening and he's viewing this from a very geopolitical lens. So I think there's a tendency for both sides, you know, to, to sort of play on, you know, the worst instincts that they see in each other. Uh, but one would hope that, you know, given the fact that we have this sort of shared threat or challenge, uh, that, you know, that, that sort of broader sensibility will prevail. Yeah. Um, let's talk a little bit about the sort of panicked response in a lot of places uh, that's really manifested in xenophobia and racism against folks of East Asian descent. I mean, this has been a major problem, um, especially mm-hmm. in Europe, actually. There's been some really uh, distressing reporting from places like Italy, which is the largest destination for Chinese overseas tourists annually, uh, where people have been, uh, you know, the site of um, a person of East Asian descent wearing a mask in an airport uh, causes panic for people. I mean, this kind of, um, you know, I think this is actually a very serious phenomenon in the sense that um, this is obviously generating a high degree of resentment, not only in China, but even outside of China, because Obviously, you don't have to be Chinese to face that kind of discrimination overseas during a panicked crisis like this. Um, but how do you how do you see this playing out? I mean, over the long term, I mean, um, even even in places like uh, Southeast Asia and South Asia, there has been 
concern of of this sort uh, manifesting in in this very kind of xenophobic behavior. A longer term, I can definitely see that um, blowing back with um, a broader resentment uh, within China against many of these places, especially. Yeah, I mean, I, I I think this is this is a particularly concerning aspect of all this, right? So you know, you're, you're seeing, as you said, in in Southeast Asia, cases already emerging of you know restaurants, um, tourism sites saying you know no entry if, if you're Chinese, mm-hmm. um, you know not not very useful thing, but also very difficult for governments to control because you 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 get down to sort of how the private sector, individual businesses and and and, and entities are responding. Uh, but nonetheless, very troubling because of the sort of racial stereotypes, and and you're also seeing the sort of, you know, the the broader cultural stereotypes about you know, you know who's who's wearing masks and you know why why Asians do this or you know why Asians don't do that, um, issues of you know hygiene and sort of um, you know the the idea that you shouldn't mix around with uh, Asian people. What in contrast to the fact that uh, as we pointed out, there's still a lot that we don't know. Uh, this is still something which, you know, uh, relative to to SARS and some of the other things we've seen, it's quite serious. But we're literally getting new facts uh, every day, uh, including on, you know, who's infected and who's not. And if you look actually at the advice that's been given by medical professionals, including the, you know, the Center for Disease Control, the folks who really know this stuff, in terms of precautions, I mean, they're saying a lot of the things that, you know, appear very sensible rather than, you know, things that would cause people to panic. So they're saying things like, you know, watch where you travel if you're going to Asia, you know, certain certain places that are vulnerable, but also, you know, basic sensible advice, you know, to avoid things like the common cold, you know, make sure you wash your hands, preserve basic hygiene and things like that. So I think, you know, in a situation in a crisis like this, the hope is always that you get, you know, cooler heads prevail and there's not a sense of panic, but unfortunately, you're seeing a lot of this manifest in some very ugly ways across the region, which is, you know, not very helpful. Absolutely, um, and you know, one of the one of the interesting uh, reactions I think among many governments is that in some places, um, the policy advice that is being given by national governments to the coronavirus situation in China is sort of being taken as a vote of confidence in the Chinese government's ability to manage this crisis internally and externally, right? So what's been really fascinating is the reaction of a country like Cambodia, right? A major Chinese partner. Um, Prime Minister Hun Sen has certainly, I think, made uh, carved himself a space out in Asia as a leader who is very much throwing in his lot with the Chinese government, showing that he's fully confident that China will handle this appropriately. In fact, uh, he just um, traveled uh, to meet with uh, Xi Jinping to actually demonstrate that in person. And he's also, you know, uh, sniped at journalists and press conferences for wearing masks, uh, saying that, you know, if he's not wearing a mask, why should reporters be wearing masks? Um, what do you what do you make of this? I mean, longer term, I mean, first of all, um, since, you know, you work on Southeast Asia, I'm just curious for your, um, you know, what you make of Hun Sen and Cambodia's reaction here. But secondly, I mean, uh, uh, in Southeast Asia, we're seeing the main, um, we're seeing many of the most, uh, um, uh, the highest number of infections outside of China. For example, uh, Thailand and Singapore each have over 20 infections. Um, Malaysia with around 10 or possibly more. Um, so what what is the, reg- um, the regional response right now? Yeah, I mean, I, I think it, it's it's one of those things that's an evolving story, right? Like, so as you pointed out, you know, you've had a number of Southeast Asian countries have cases. The Philippines was actually where the first, I think, confirmed deaths was reported outside of China. Um, and so Southeast Asia really has been, uh, you know, at the center of all of this. And the the sort of trade and economic linkages um, between China and Southeast Asian states, you know, really have increased over the past few years. And this is where you see sort of the na- negative manifestations of this, right, in terms of, you know, people who are traveling back and forth and such. 
I think the 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 sort of um, governance problem with a lot of these uh, Southeast Asian states uh, bears out here. So I think in in some of the cases, like you know, if cases were breaking out in in countries that are less developed, you worry about capacity issues. In the case of Cambodia, though, uh, I think you know Hun Sen's you know trip to China and kind of the way he's framed it is to sort of show solidarity with China in face of you know when when a lot of its responses are being questioned and. The international uh, community is is sort of condemning China for for its response, which is actually a caricaturing of what the international response has been. But uh, I think Hun Sen has been uh, trying to, you know, sort of mount this you know hyperbolic initiative to sort of go to China and say, hey, listen, you know, we're we're not actually going to uh, you know isolate China. I'm happy to visit here, and you know, Cambodians, you know, shouldn't be scared about what's happening. The problem with that, though, is that you know, as you pointed out, with uh, the the sort of press conference and his thing about, you know, don't you know, you don't need to wear a mask. You know, the prime minister is not wearing a mask. You know, things like this. It falls into the category of some of the stereotypical comments that we've heard from some Asian officials, um, you know, around the region about, you know, what this virus is about and how to take preventive measure measures and how not to. Um, and so it, it's sort of a, a very interesting uh, case of, you know, Hun Sen trying to show that Cambodia is very close to China and has solidarity, but also domestically, you know, really raising questions about what a Southeast Asian leader is actually telling uh, the public to, to do in that sense. I think it is important to emphasize, though, I mean, the other you know, flip side of this is, a, is an example of Singapore, for example, where the government is extremely competent in handling this. And you would think, you know, of all the Asian governments that are dealing with this, you know, Singaporeans would be most well placed to do it, but even the Singaporean government has faced some some difficulties in terms of you know being able to distribute the, the amount of masks that are available, stemming false information and disinformation. So even I think the most capable countries um, in Southeast Asia and the region, it's important to emphasize, face challenges during the times like this, and it's not just you know countries that are lesser developed or or closer to China necessarily that have this issue. Yeah, I mean, uh, to you know, to go a little bit to another part of Asia, I think uh, one of the major parts of Asia that I'm very concerned about uh, reacting to the coronavirus is actually North Korea. Um, so mm-hmm. North Korea is very, very sensitive to international public health shocks. Uh, when, uh, for example, they reacted to the Ebola crisis a few years ago, the country was effectively um, locked down as best as they could. And this time, it seems that they've gone even further. Uh, the border with Russia is shut. Trains and airplanes aren't coming in. Um, land border, uh, The land border with China especially has been uh, a major source of concern because coronavirus cases have been reported in um, China's northern uh, Jilin province, which borders uh, North Korea. Um, but economically, I mean, one of the major sources of revenue that the North Korean state continues to rely on under the international sanctions regime is tourism. Uh, they've actually been making a lot of investments recently. Uh, Kim Jong-un himself has been visiting hot springs and ski resorts and investing in coastal um, resorts in places like Wonsan on the North Korean East Coast. Um, and now, depending on how long this coronavirus uh, situation um, remains hot, and especially it remains hot in China, uh, it could be a very, very serious problem for North Korea economically. Um, it's it's in a way, I mean, the North Koreans are taking measures to sanction themselves, right? Because um, even though they are going to lose massive amounts of tourist revenue, uh, the worst possible thing for them would be to have the, a coronavirus epidemic uh, enter their borders and stress their very poor public health infrastructure, effectively requiring them to allow international um, assistance into the country, uh, which is something that they're, again, not very keen on doing. But what's been interesting and what I've been wondering about is uh, whether this, um, whether the coronavirus shock 
is actually going to prevent North Korea from um, potentially lashing out in other ways, right? I mean, we've been anticipating North Korea to potentially conduct ballistic missile launches or even possibly hold a military parade. Actually, some satellite imagery from January suggested that they were preparing for a parade before the coronavirus situation became apparent. And now they've issued guidance saying that uh, no public gatherings are encouraged or permitted around the country which suggests that they won't be doing a military parade. So I think uh, certainly for a country like North Korea, this is a major source of concern. Uh, they are simply not ready to deal with a, a public health crisis uh, like the coronavirus. Um, and given its high level of communicability, um, it's completely unsurprising the extent to which that they've, um, they've tried to shut down incoming travel from, um, from the Chinese side of the border. Uh, but we'll have to see, I mean, what the longer term economic implications of this will be on the, on the country. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, and I think, you know, to your point about, you know, other regions, and this is obviously an evolving story, we, we have seen another sub-region of concern would be South Asia, right? Mm -hmm. And we've seen cases already in, in Nepal and, and Sri Lanka. And I, I sort of do wonder, you know, how, how far that's going to spread out as well, because that that's another one of uh, focus and attention. Yeah, yeah, I think, uh, yeah, I mean, you know, there are still uh, lots of questions about the precise extent mm -hmm. to which this disease is communicable. Um, it is it is remarkable, though, I mean, looking at the fatality figures that have been reported by China, uh, almost 500 as of this recording, um, and, and the fatalities outside of China, uh, there is really, I think, a, a sharp difference there. And the reasons for that uh, aren't really apparent. But, you know, um, I guess, you know, um, for, for listeners at least, uh, there has been a lot of panic around the coronavirus. But at least for now, it does appear that most people who are succumbing to the disease are people with already compromised immune systems or the elderly. Um, I think mm -hmm. the youngest person to have died so far is almost 36 years old, uh, which is certainly... I think um, on, on the young side, but but not anything like uh, you know the the 1918 Spanish flu, for example, which was uh, particularly deadly against even um, even healthier uh, younger people. So uh, yeah, I mean this is something to keep an eye on. I think um, nobody really expected 2020 to kick off with a potential uh, global pandemic on our hands, uh, and this isn't just yet a pandemic, but certainly the communicability of this disease um, and uh, depending on the effectiveness of the global public health response, um, it might, it might um, end up being something that we end up talking about for a long time. Right. So um, mm -hmm. certainly I know that th that's a major concern for uh, Japan uh, hosting the summer Olympics later this year. So uh, yeah, I think uh, Prashant will have to keep a close eye on this and we'll probably end up uh, talking about it sooner rather than later. I expect. Yeah, I'm sure. Great. Well, uh, thanks a lot for joining me, Prashant. Yeah. Good to be with you. Right. Uh, so for our listeners, uh, make sure you subscribe to the podcast so you don't miss future episodes. You can do that on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, or any other number of podcast providers out there. And if you have been a listener for a while, but you haven't yet left us a review, uh, please do that. We really appreciate that. It also helps new people find the show. Um, so please do leave us a review. We really do appreciate those. And finally, before we close, a note from our sponsor. This episode of the Asia Geopolitics Podcast is brought to you by Diplomat Risk Intelligence, or DRI. DRI is the Consulting and Analysis Division of The Diplomat, the Asia-Pacific's leading current affairs magazine. Since its launch in 2002, The Diplomat has been dedicated to quality analysis and commentary on events and trends in Asia and around the world, and is now one of the most respected publications covering the region. DRI inherits this approach and offers clients in the private, public, and nonprofit sectors worldwide access to an exclusive network of subject matter experts and analysts. Whatever your needs in the wider Asia-Pacific region, DRI can offer the knowledge and expertise necessary to anticipate and manage geopolitical and geoeconomic risks. For more information, please visit dri.thediplomat.com. Thanks a lot for listening, and we'll be back next week with more.